This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Great to be with you. World-renowned filmmaker, ufologist James Fox is standing by, along with our good friend Victor Vigiani from... Zeland News Network, James, has a brand new documentary out called The Phenomenon, and we'll delve into that in just moments. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer, and Ryan White is my live stream producer. And yes, we're live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. If you've joined us on the live stream and it's your first time, please uh, just hit that red sub button. We we have 22,000 subscribers. Please help us to get to 25,000. All right. Director James Fox's explosive documentary, The Phenomenon, is being hailed as the most credible and revealing film ever made about the longstanding global cover-up and mystery involving unidentified aerial phenomenon, including shocking never-before-seen testimony from high-ranking government and military officials, NASA astronauts, and riveting footage. The timely film includes bombshell reveals about UAP incursions at nuclear weapon facilities and the monumental events behind the New York Times recent disclosure of UFO videos and the Pentagon's classified UFO program, providing eye-opening evidence that mankind is not alone in the universe. Senator Harry Reid says the phenomenon makes the incredible Credible. James Fox began his journalism career in the in life as an assistant to his father, writer Charles Fox, a quadriplegic with multiple sclerosis. Together, they traveled on many magazine assignments, interviewing such notables as Stephen Hawking and race car legend Dan Gurney for the likes of Rolling Stone, Car and Driver to Sports Illustrated. James finished and sold his first documentary to Discovery by the time he was 28. He's since completed and distributed TV projects for Sci-Fi, TLC, National Geographic, and the History Channel. His films include Out of the Blue, I Know What I Saw, and his latest, The Phenomenon. Welcome, James Fox. How are you? That was a mouthful. i got to meet this guy. 
<laughs> if well, you know, that you just keep building that resume. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Let me just welcome uh, my special co-host and good friend, Victor Vigiani, is the executive director of Zeland Communications and Zeland News Network. He's a retired school principal from Toronto. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology and Psychology from York University and a master's in educational administration and curriculum development from Brock University. Victor's research and analysis of anomalous aerial phenomenon spans well over 30 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalism in the field of ETI disclosure issues. Victor, welcome to you. How are you, my friend? Just fine, and great to be with you both, James and and. Uh and my good friend Richard. Uh, oh, James, what a I introduction. I, yeah, sorry. No, no, that's all right. I, uh, I I finished watching the documentary this afternoon, and um, it 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 looks uh, like you 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 started filming, or at least some of the interviews were done before 2017. And we'll get into the New York Times article. Um, so when you set out to make this, and I don't know about the exact timing, I'm assuming you started before 2017, based on some of the footage. Did you have any idea where this was he- heading in terms of the the monumental disclosure that that came about in December 2017? Absolutely none. And and we were four and a half years in when that story broke on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and it's funny actually because the last I actually made uh, three previous films. I say three and a half because we did a couple of versions of Out of the Blue. But um, and kind of coincidentally. You know, it takes me so long to make a movie, usually four to six years. Something inevitably happens, breaks news, UFO sighting, a case. Maybe there's an effort for government transparency. Something usually happens. And it had for the last three films I'd made. And I was talking to some of my co-producers, and they said, well, how are you going to end this movie? I said, well, I don't know. You know, uh, probably there's going to be a... Um, a sighting that happens, and maybe we'll go and capture, you know, the witnesses, and we'll see, you know. And uh, I knew something would happen, but I had no idea that there was going to be a secret UFO Pentagon program revealed on the front page of the New York Times. And uh, the film begins, or uh, he's he's near the very beginning anyway. There's a, a kind of a teaser from Christopher Mellon, who is the former assistant deputy deputy, sorry, the former assistant deputy secretary of defense for intelligence with uh, quite a, re- uh, a revealing uh, quote. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you got Christopher Mellon uh, on board and what, what he has to say. So I was probably three, three to four years into the film when Lee Spiegel uh, got on board uh, he wrote for the Huffington Post. I think he was one of the very few journalists paid to write about aerial phenomena. And he came on board and he brought Jacques Vallée on board. And Jacques got, Jacques is sort of the intellectual heavyweight on the topic of UFOs. His character was portrayed in Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Francois Truffaut. And Jacques about a year and a half in, said, you know, we might want to consider approaching Christopher Mellon. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I don't know if Christopher Mellon is going to respond to my request, but he might respond to yours. So, of course, Jacques reached out to him, 
And uh, Christopher Mellon literally said, when Jacques says jump, I respond, how high? Interesting. And I think what's interesting is the the le- the the level um, in terms of the higher ups and 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 uh, qualified qualified people that are coming forward now. When you have a former assistant deputy secretary for defense intelligence coming forward and speaking openly about this, that really indicates that the, the you know the the needle is being pushed forward. Wouldn't you say? Well, here's the thing that I've noticed with this production, and and by the way, it took a village. Uh, Victor has been quietly working behind the scenes for. Victor, how long have you been helping me out, sending me information, clips? I, I, over a decade. Oh, easily, yes, for sure. Yeah, he's been wonderful. It's like you know, I'm like he sends me this treasure trove of stuff. I'm like Victor, where did you find this? But it, but but honestly, it's taken a, it's taken a village, and and what I've noticed with the phenomenon for the first time, and I'll remind your audience that this is my fourth film on the topic, I've been doing this for 26 years, is that I've never seen the level of interest with mainstream household names uh, to, to watch the film, but not only that, publicly endorse it. And that I have not seen before uh, at this level. So it's very exciting what's happening right now. How do folks uh, see or screen the phenomenon, James? Well, there's a number of sites. Uh, we, we list them um, on our website. If you go to www.thephenomenonfilm.com, thephenomenonfilm.com, if you buy it, make sure you buy it from iTunes or Vimeo because it, because it comes with three hours of bonus material for no extra cost. And, of course, if you rent it, then rent it from wherever. Okay, before I turn it over to Victor for a question, just give people a kind of a sense of how this is structured, because it's, I mean, you do talk about the New York Times uh, article that came out in December 2017, but you also give us kind of an, uh, a crash course in, in, in uh, the suppression of the UFO reality. Just explain a little bit. Well, we were, we, were, we were in the studio, and we had this mantra, and our mantra was every day for you know, in the edit studio for the better part of four years, we would say, where are we going? And our response was road to Rua. And what we meant by that, we are going to end the film with a, what many consider the most compelling close encounter of the third kind in modern world history. Um, And that is a landing case that happened in Rua, Zimbabwe at a school called Aerial School in 1994 where roughly 100 schoolchildren, 66 of which went on camera, uh, claimed to have seen a landed object, disc-shaped, uh, some claimed multiple objects, and uh, occupants getting out and interacting with the children uh, telepathically. So I knew that no one in their right mind was going to believe this incident happened if we were successful in sort of transcending the UFO community. Because I myself, when I first heard about it, actually, funny enough, through Steven Spielberg back in 1997, when I was just naive enough at the time to think I can get an interview with with Steven Spielberg. And uh, in 1997, he responded through our mutual friend, Janet, hey, uh, I'm not going to let James interview me, but he should know about this landing case that happened in Africa. And that's the first time I heard of it. And I just quickly dismissed it because I said to myself, 
there's no way that a broad daylight encounter with the sheer volume of eyewitness testimony could occur and not the, and, and not the whole world have heard about it. And so I knew what we were up against if I was going to feel that way. So I had to do a fairly significant snapshot of history to build our case as to the likelihood of, of the event in Rua having taken place. And I think we succeeded. Oh, yes, I'll say. And as we'll discuss uh, later, you, you brought uh, all, all of those witnesses together again, or some of them anyway, twenty uh, tw- about 20 years later. And uh, people can look forward to that in the film. Uh, let me uh, turn it over to my colleague, Victor Vigiani, for a question. Victor? Yeah, well, actually, James, you know, it's, it's really kind of funny. You, you mentioned what you just, uh, what you just said about, uh, uh, about Spielberg. Uh, you sort of uh, made, made a, make a point in the whole thing. You, you outline this huge historical uh, chronology uh, from the beginning till about the, what, the almost seven or eight, ten, fifteen minutes into the last part of the program, and you laid down the, what I call sort of a Hansel and Gretel kind of uh, chronology of all of the evidence you put forward, and then you hit the audience with the aerial school thing, and it, and did you sort of set all that up so that people would say, oh my goodness, this aerial thing is kind of the, you know, the, 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 the denouement of, of, of everything, that no one's going to believe this unless they kind of deal with all of the issues that you raise both historically and currently, and then lead right into the, the aerial school for, um, for, the, for, that, for that part of the film. I, I knew because of my personal reaction to it, and we cover another uh, landing case that happened at a school in Westall, Australia in 1966. And when I first heard about that case, which there were well over 200 witnesses, again in broad daylight at a school, roughly 10 o'clock in the morning during recess, um, I just, you know, I just found it hard to imagine how an incident of that nature with so many witnesses in broad daylight could, could occur and the whole world not know about it. So I kind of knew what we were up against, and I kind of knew, not like I'm trying to go around prophesizing, getting people to join my cult of believers, because that's not what this is about, but I really wanted to kind of give a snapshot history that, uh, you know, these things are real, they're, they're intelligently controlled, and, uh, and it's a global phenomenon, and, and they are landing, and there are credible reports of witnesses, uh, you know, reporting these, these beings associated with the craft. James Fox is with us, along with Victor Vigiani. James's new film, The Phenomenon, you can uh, go to thephenomenonfilm.com, and uh, there are a number of ways you can uh, watch it. Uh, you can also go to strangeplanet.ca and just click on uh, the uh, the film title, and it'll take you right to the Phenomenon Film. Dot com. You mentioned Jacques Vallée, who features uh, prominently in the phenomenon, and there's a um, a passage in the in the documentary about uh, Vallée and Dr. J. Allen Hynek from Project Blue Book, both testifying at the United Nations in 1978. And um, uh, I don't want to give too much uh, of the film away here, but there's a very important mention here of a letter that Valet studied or, or discovered, I guess, among Dr. J. Allen Hynek's uh, voluminous papers, uh, a letter he says changed his life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Dr. Valet stumbled upon accidentally a top-secret letter in Dr. Hynek's files, uh, and I believe it was in the 60s. 
Um, and he couldn't help himself but to read it. But what it revealed, uh, Project Stork, it was, it was basically a highly funded effort to investigate the phenomenon using all the instruments and tools strategically in high sighting areas uh, to gather data. And it was a highly funded super secret program that paralleled Project Blue Book, which basically illustrates the fact that Project Blue Book was more, nothing more than sort of a dog and pony show. Right. And, and I believe that this discovery was, if I'm not mistaken, after the Condon report had basically said, you know, uh, enough is enough. We're, we're done studying this. You know, I, I, we, I was so lucky. And again, I have to thank Lee Spiegel, who put on the United Nations event um, for this, for bringing Jacques on board. But Jacques didn't just, you know, read about this and study these aspects of the phenomenon and, you know, the Condon report and Project Blue Book and, and Dr. Hynek's association in connection with, with the Air Force. He actually lived it, you know, and, and uh, so to have him help us put together the pieces of the puzzle in a way that's never been done before was just such a boon to our production. I'll, I'll give you one exa- another example. Um, do, do we have time? or? Yes, yes, please. Okay, so uh, Jacques reluctantly kind of initially got involved at sort of arm's length, and, and he was going to just participate in one aspect of production, and that was covering the Rockefeller Initiative, because he was part of it. And when Jacques got more involved and started to see some of the cases that I had been spending many, many years investigating, one of which was the landing incident in Socorro, New Mexico, one of the most well-documented close encounters of the third kind in U.S. history, um, with Officer Lonnie Zamora, Jacques, you know, became more and more intimately involved in the edit room, and he would come out for the weekends and he'd spend these marathon edit sessions with us. But he told me that he was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in April of 1964, and he was trying to tell Heineck, uh, who was investigating scientific advisor to Project Blue Book, the Air Force, you know, investigatory arm of UFOs, uh, about cases that were explained away as psychological. And he was telling Heineck, look, you've got to pay more closer attention to these cases. These cases are close encounters. They're happening in France. They're happening here in the United States. And he was really trying to get Heineck to take these more seriously. And literally two days after this, meeting at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, Socorro happened. And so he saw... You know, Dr. Heineck go to Socorro, meet the witness, see the evidence on the ground, and he saw sort of this this transformation uh, that happened with Dr. Heineck when it happened back in 1964. I mean, that, that's sort of the the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. That I think that case that that Heineck really realized that we were truly dealing with something. Um, excuse the pun, out of this world. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you included the Socorro, New Mexico um, incident there, and you did such a wonderful job uh, really putting some meat on them bones because so often I find that case is kind of glossed over, but you talked to Lonnie's partner and and, uh, uh, you included some rare footage of uh, when they went to investigate the site and we see the... uh, the uh, the imprint from the craft and 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 so forth. You interviewed Lonnie's uh, uh, widow. 
Uh, so well, well done on Socorro, New Mexico. Uh, let me just throw it over, Victor. We have time for a, a quick question before we break. Yeah, I, do, I want to, to take off again once on the on the uh, Lonnie Zamora case. I, I think um, you, you did something <clears throat> a little bit kind of different with respect to uh, cataloging that event and then linking it to the Tic Tac video because the shape of the uh, the object that uh, <clears throat> excuse me that Lonnie Zamora saw was very similar to the actual Tic Tac. Uh, video craft that that uh, that yes. the United States Navy pilot side. So you kind of made those things uh, a, a linked entity, didn't you, Victor? That's a great observation. Very few people catch that. And I actually went as far as to look up when Tic Tacs were invented, and I think it was like a year later, <laughs> because I was like, well, if Tic Tacs were invented earlier than that, then maybe Lonnie would have said it looked like a Tic Tac <laughs> as opposed to an egg, you know. So, no, it's a very, very interesting observation, and I definitely noticed that as well, because... Well, I don't know if you're going to yeah, believe me, but I have in my notes, uh, because I, I have it with the William Coleman um, sighting in 1955. I have that similar to um, uh, it, it as well. I think there's a photo there which shows the craft sort of on its side as well, and and there's also a, a, there's a photo... Uh, I, I believe it was from the gunship from the F-18 with the Nimitz group that that showed a craft kind of on its side. And I've, I, th- I thought those were similar. Uh, there's a lot of sort of similarities we're seeing when people describing these these craft as being, you know, metallic and and, um, uh, you know, just kind of shimmering and so forth and, and appearing to be white against the blue sky. Uh, we're going to take a, a quick time out. James Fox stays with us. The Phenomenon is the documentary. Go to thephenomenonfilm.com uh, to find out how to view it. Uh, and he and Victor and I will be back in one moment. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Filmmaker, ufologist, James Fox is with us. The Phenomenon is his new documentary. Thephenomenonfilm.com is where you go to view it. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is here. And um, the other similarity I, I found was uh, there was a photo taken in Arizona that you show in the film two weeks after the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And uh, that also is very similar to a photo taken from, uh, the, I believe, one of the gunship cameras uh, from the U.S. Nimitz Group, and uh, in 2004, so um, that's kind of eerie. The other thing that struck me is as you're you're building this this wonderful sort of history, and we you know in the 1940 late 1940s with uh, United Airlines pilots and um, and and then other sightings, you describe it or they described it in in the newspaper headlines as an armada or a fleet of discs. Often there is nine of them flying in formation and someone makes the point uh that it seemed almost like a deliberate show of force from these crafts talk to me about that well you know we went to great lengths because you know the history of the modern history of ufos has has been kind of beaten to death um but we went to great lengths to throw a new light 
um, take up never before seen archival footage, newsreel, uh, interviews with well known cases that, uh, that are incredibly rare. Uh, and that, that took quite an effort. Uh, we have people to thank, like, uh, David Marler, Marler Archives in, in, in New Mexico, uh, Tom Tulian, um, my sister Kelly. I mean, we found stuff, we unearthed stuff that the world has never seen before. Um, because I, I really felt that it was important to not just show uh, a headline, but if you could show a headline and then hear from the actual witness, uh, that just really strengthens your, strengthens your case. And, um, you know, give an example, we, we obviously feature the infamous Kenneth Arnold 1947 uh, UFO encounter, um, but we interview his daughter, Kim Arnold, so we get sort of the inside scoop of the impact it had on the family, and she shared with us uh, correspondence between, you know, Kenneth and, and the Air Force, uh, photographs, originals that, that she kept, that the family kept since 1947. Uh, that we feature in the film, um, you know that really cool sighting that happened with uh, United Airlines pilots William Nash and William Fortenberry, 1952, just before the White House and the Capitol building were buzzed in July. Um, really, really compelling eyewitness testimony. Very unambiguous encounters. That, yeah, that you know, inescapable conclusion that it was like a show of force, and that I think we even. We even titled that section of the film is exactly that, because that's what it looked like. It looked like someone flexing their muscles. His Kenneth Arnold's daughter also revealed something I didn't know, and that was that that in the aftermath of Kenneth's uh, Kenneth Arnold's sightings, that generated more press interest than than uh, the end of the Second World War. Yeah, no, he was very very famous. He actually ran for lieutenant governor of Idaho. Wow. All right, Victor, take it away. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to kind of uh, go back and forth on this because there's just so much in the in the film. We could uh, discuss it for the next two hours. But I, I, let's go to, to Harry Reid for a second. And what really impressed me about your interview with Harry, uh, with his, with the former senator, was you, you, you got him in that room. He was sitting in a chair and you were sitting opposite him for I don't know exactly how long the whole interview took place. But there's a point at which you asked him a question. I'm not exactly sure what exactly the question was, if I can recall it. But the question was so really um, well pointed. You you really drew him out really well. And he was kind of taken aback. So he st- he waits for a second, picks up a glass of water, takes a sip of water and looks you in the eye and then answers your question and drops a bombshell uh, on, on your lap. And that, to me, was just so genuine, the way you handled the interview uh, with a former senator who, who knows exactly what's going on and, and, and the pressure he was under to bring it forward. Oh, that, that, that was one of the more, that was one of the bombshell moments of, of, of the whole production. And there were a handful of those moments, believe me. But that was probably, if not number one, it, it's, well, probably number one. I, I got I to gotta back up for a moment. Uh, that interview came about after months of negotiations. Uh, George Knapp was pulling strings behind the scenes. In fact, there were a couple of people pulling strings behind the scenes, and it was a small window that opened, and we just managed to get that interview. And I was gobsmacked. I mean, you know, we mm-hmm. set up the whole scene because he was like, okay, I'm going to have 53 minutes, 
you know, I'll arrive, we'll sit down, we'll do the interview, then I've got to go. And he showed up, he had a whole entourage, he had security detail. The guy looked like, you know, like I didn't get too close to Senator Reed without looking at him to make sure it was okay. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. like, you know, this guy mm-hmm. was looking at me like, don't even, you know. So I was concerned about pushing the envelope. I was concerned about going beyond his comfort level. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say it was about 35, 40 minutes into the interview. I knew I had about 10 more minutes. He was going pretty far. I was amazed at what he was revealing. And I decided, because I'd heard from people like David Fravor and George Knapp and a handful of others, that what was released on the front page of the New York Times, uh, evidence-wise, was just the tip of the iceberg. And so I decided to kind of breach that topic. And I, I was reminiscing, and I told him about an interview that I'd done with Gordon Cooper, Mercury astronaut Gordon Cooper, back in the 90s. And Gordon um, had shared with me a couple of uh, instances, but one in particular was about this uh, this alleged landing at Edwards Air Force Base that his film crew had documented on camera of a flying saucer that landed on the dry lake bed in broad daylight uh, circa 1957 at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, he, ha- he, didn't, he wasn't a witness, but he, his, his crew... Uh, brought him the film footage, he had it developed, he held it up to see if it was good footage, it was. Um, And all the while, he was in contact with the higher-ups in Washington, eventually a career jet came in to pick it up, and he handed the footage over. And I was telling this story uh, to Senator Reid, and just when I got to the point where I said yes, and he told me on camera that he handed the footage over to this, you know, people that came in from Washington... And Senator Reid said, and it was never seen or heard from again. I went, exactly. And then he tried to change the topic. He was like, he was going somewhere else. And I was like, well, hold on. Senator, are are you suggesting, are you saying that, you know, there's some evidence that hasn't seen the light of day? And it was like time had stopped. And Honestly, wow. I wasn't sure if I'd pushed the limit, if I'd just gone beyond his comfort level. I really didn't know. And what seemed like several minutes, I'm sure it was just a moment, he picked up his water bottle, he took the cap off, and he had a sip, and he put the cap back on, and he said, I'm saying that most of the evidence hasn't been the light of day. And, uh, hmm. wow, that was a level of confirmation people in the field had suspected for a long time, but to have someone of his level, I mean, one of the second most powerful men in in the U.S., I mean, he was Senate Majority Leader, to confirm it was huge. With regards to the, Coop, the, the Cooper footage, um, there's a, a piece in the in the documentary, the phenomenon that that where they we sort of found out what supposedly happened to that footage. Didn't Cooper speak to uh, or sit in on a cabinet meeting with um, Defense Secretary Cohen at the time? And and yeah, uh, Cohen, really funny, really yeah. Funny tell us about because, that. Well, because when I met with with our former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Christopher Reed, try saying that quickly ten times. Um, in Washington, D.C., we were sort of, you know, talking while the camera crews were setting up, and lo and behold, 
you know, I was telling him about my meeting with Gordon Cooper, and he goes, oh, my gosh, really? You met with him? I said, yeah, I, I interview, interviewed him in the 90s, and he was telling me about his footage. He goes, you're kidding me. You got him on camera? I said, yeah, no, I did. He goes, well, he came into the White House, and he told the story to President Clinton when Clinton was kind of going after this stuff. And so I was put in charge of, in an official capacity to go after that landing footage. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no, I was doing it in the 90s. I said, shoot, right around the same time I was interviewing Gordon Cooper, you were, you know. And uh, he said that eventually he got in, in touch with a high-level uh, Air Force guy who basically said, uh, oh, we had to clean up, you know, we had to make space and, you know, throw all that stuff out. Of course, Chris had a totally incredulous look on his face like, yeah, right, you're going to throw away landing footage of a flying saucer at Edwards Air Force Base. Like, yeah, sure. But yeah, they they did, they were not successful in getting their hands on that. But apparently it's there. It's still there. Wow. Yeah, that's what, uh, that's what uh, Senator Reid, oh yeah, Senator Reid said, yeah, that stuff's all there. It's there. I mean, look, you said the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the tip of the iceberg. What you've seen is just the tip of the iceberg. So I, we have a call, call to action at the end of the movie because you know, you can't explain away this phenomenon as swamp gas and weather balloons and misidentified aircraft to an educated population. And that's what I really hope this film will do, because it's going to be much more difficult for them to uh, provide a nonsense explanation or say, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have this stuff, which we will just know that. It's not the case. All right, James, we're going to take another time out. Stay put. You too, Victor, will be back on the other side with more on the phenomenon. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. James Fox stays with us. The Phenomenon is his latest documentary, and you can go to thephenomenonfilm.com, thephenomenonfilm.com, and there are a number of ways uh, to view it. But if you go, at, go through uh, iTunes uh, or Vimeo, there's uh, some um, bonus material there that you'll, you'll get as well. Uh, and, uh, of course, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with us. Victor, over to you. Yeah, I wanted to kind of raise uh, kind of uh, there is sort of uh, joined issues here, uh, James. Um, Senator Reid brings up, um, like as you as you mentioned earlier, a really visceral reaction to your question about uh, the film and just the the, ov- the overall impact of, of really what's going on with the whole issue. And you know, Robert Salas, uh, he, we, we should talk about this for. sure. Sure. Before the end, with the nuclear, uh, you know, uh, implications with UFOs and all of that, I, I guess my my overall question to you would be, you know, when you get people like this coming forward of such gravitas and such, uh, you know, basic knowledge, how and when do you think mainstream scientists are going to take this issue up and bring it forward as a real issue in mainstream science? It, how far down the road do you think that is, and will it ever even happen? Well, you know, having witnessed what Gary Nolan and Jacques Vallée are doing in a lab in Silicon Valley, um, and that they are waiting to make any more concrete uh, announcements or analysis 
prior to peer review and being published in a, a scientific journal, I think to me is very exciting because that's exactly what they're they're pushing for is for the you know scientific community to take a closer look at the phenomenon. And um, I think it's very exciting what's happening. And and also, you know, I'm seeing. Uh, just the other night, I, I got uh, I got a call from Scotland, and there was an astronomer and a physicist that wanted to see if it was okay if they played the film at at a school and uh, at a conference, uh, which I thought was rather encouraging. That you know you had sort of these mainstream scientists that normally poo poo stuff on this phenomenon, asking if they could use this this film as an educational tool. To, to bring on more more scientists in the field, so that was very encouraging. I, I really think that that we are rapidly approaching the tipping point with this, and I think people like you know Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon and Harry Reid, uh, the New York Times, and, and a handful of others have, have made a, a huge made a lot of progress and made a huge difference in the last couple of years. Uh, James, you, you you mentioned Valet's work with Nolan in Silicon Valley, and uh, this has to do with uh, exotic materials that Valet has collected over the years, reportedly from UFO crash sites. They're they're analyzing this stuff at at an atomic level. Uh, can you share a few a few of their findings? So I'm not a scientist, but uh, yes, um, they are cautious in what they will say publicly, but preliminary results indicate material that was engineered, uh, engineered at an atomic level, engineered in a way that would be nearly impossible by what they could tell, um, and that uh, before they make any more concrete statements, they're going to have the analysis published in a scientific journal and and, uh, and get peer review. But it's very, very exciting. Let's put it that way. Let's go to the the nuclear issue, James, because it's, if uh, um, if, oh, if I ever get into a conference... I'll tell you about that one. <laughs> For sure. Really oh, it's, there, there's, there, really there is fun. so much to it. Um, yeah, you take off on it because I think you're, uh, anyone who watches the, the film will yeah. eventually get to the point where I think you'll probably say this. These things are entering our airspace with impunity and hovering over nuclear installations and doing things, turning things on and off. Uh, nuclear yeah, so weapons. I mean, this, this has to be something really, really special here in the film. So, so here's how it came about in the film. We cover this fairly extensively. Um, I was probably about six years into production, maybe six and a half. And a very good friend, a co-editor, this guy Lance Mungia, and uh, he said to me, James, all these reports and these landings and the stuff at, 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 at Holloman, White Sands, and Socorro, and Texas, you know, we should get a map and we should put a little pin in these different locations and just kind of take a look at what's going on here. And I thought, you know, that's a good idea. So we did. And what I started to see was that the proximity to the Trinity site, which is the first detonation of the atomic bomb back in 1945, to all these sightings. 
I mean, literally, they were, like, all around the area. And I just, you know, I was just kind of shocked. Like, wow, there's got to be a correlation here. Well, at right around the same time, I managed to get that interview, as I was, we were talking about earlier, with Senator Harry Reid. And we did the whole interview with 47 minutes into it. And I said, uh, Senator, and I knew he was on a very ri- rigorous schedule. I knew we only had a couple more minutes. And I really wanted to get a shot of him and I walking and talking for B-roll that I just might need. So uh, I asked him, I said, Senator, would you mind before you leave, just get a really quick, you know, shot of us walking and talking. And uh, he he knew what, you know, what I needed to do. He said, well, sure, let's do it. I looked over to the the photographer and I said, look, don't worry about it. We don't have time to get lighting. And it is what it is. Just get a couple quick shots. So I figured while I was walking with him, I might as well take advantage of my time. And I asked him, Senator, um, thank God I asked him this question. I don't know why I didn't ask it when we were sitting down, but I didn't. I said, Senator, what was one of the more astonishing aspects that you guys uncovered uh, as part of the ATIP pro- program, the uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, uh, at the Pentagon for that 10-year period? And he sort of paused and he looked at me and he said, the fact that they're, they're interacting with their nuclear weapons. And then he said, he went as far as saying that there were a couple of cases he knew about that if the President of the United States wanted to launch, they couldn't have done it. These things were just not only making incursions over these super-sensitive nuclear weapons facilities, but they were shutting these things off. And I knew right then and there, okay, i got to address this. I, I kind of had an inkling. I had heard about it before. I mean, I covered a little bit about this, the Vandenberg Air Force Base case that Jacobs had witnessed back in the 60s. Um, but I, I never really took a real good look at it. So I reached out to Robert Hastings because he's the guy. James, uh, pardon the interruption. Yeah. Uh, pardon the interruption. We're going to pick this up on the other side. We'll take one final time out. James Fox, The Phenomenon, thephenomenonfilm.com. Back with more in a moment. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. The phenomenon uh, director James Fox is here for a few moments yet, and uh, and then after the top of the hour, into the second hour, Victor Vigiani uh, will stay with me, and we'll continue to talk about uh, the film, which we both recently screened, and um, all things disclosure. Uh, James, you mentioned the and Victor were talking about the uh, the nuclear. Uh, sites that were taken offline, places like uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base and Minot Air Force Base, um, Malmstrom in 1967. Um, As it turns out, on the other side uh, of the Cold War, uh, you had had something similar happening, uh, except in this case, in one 
case in particular in in Ukraine at an air uh, at a nu- nuclear base, they were these UFOs were uh, launching the uh, or that the signal was being triggered, so they were turning them off in the United States and seemingly turning them on in Ukraine. Yeah, I'm sorry, I was long winded on the last explanation because I kind of wanted your audience to hear the the evolution of my thought process on on this topic because I wouldn't have probably highlighted it had it not been for a the map during documenting some of these sightings back in the 50s and 60s and even flyovers in the 40s but but my meeting with with uh, Senator Harry Reid and then of course. Um, Robert Hastings, UFOs and nukes, made all of his uh, lifelong investigations, decades after decade, uh, available to us for the film. So we put together a very poignant eight to ten minute section of testimony uh, of people claiming that uh, firsthand eyewitness accounts of these UFOs not only being seen, picked up on radar, but turning, in most cases, turning the UFOs off, but in some cases, both in the U.S., and in Russia, thanks, we know about this thanks to uh, the research that George Knapp has done in the 90, in 1993. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy because, you know, Robert Salas, who's the launch control officer, colonel in the United States Air Force, I'll never forget what he said to me. He was like, well, what does it tell you? To me, it's like taking, hands out of the mat- uh, taking matches out of the hands of a baby. All right, Victor, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I want to, before we leave, uh, James, you've gone through this whole exercise, and you said it, you know, it just takes six or seven years or whatever the, the length. What is this, the finality of this particular film? Uh, I know you've done the, the others, you know, I know what I've seen, and, uh, and, and out of the blue. What has this particular production taken out of you? What what kind of impact has it had on you, both physically and emotionally and spiritually? What, what, what has this exercise done to you? I, I, I know you have some comments on that. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but... Not at all. I, felt like I, I honestly felt like I was going to die about seven years into it, maybe six and a half. I was pushed so hard. The, the best way I can describe it, it's like being in the ring with a monster and you're just trying to survive the next round. And it's, it's relentless because you can't punch out the clock and go home. It stays with you 24-7 for nearly eight years. And there were so many hurdles. Just doing a documentary is hard enough. But if mm-hmm. I told your audience the hurdles that I encountered along the way, we'd be here for nine hours. Can you give us give us a yeah. taste of one of those hurdles? James, can you give us a taste of yeah, one of here, those I'm hurdles here, that I'm you here. faced? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, uh, you've got everything from disgruntled partners running out of money, people trying to stop production for whatever their motivations are uh litigation uh i think i mentioned (laughs) the financial side Uh um just getting people to go on camera i mean i look i could write a book on what it took just to get the uh the rua section of this film which is only what under 10 minutes 
together, that took five years. Not just editing, but, you know, negotiations and raising the funds and flying in the witnesses, working with people like Randall Nickerson, working with uh, executive producers, trying to coordinate all the schedules, um, dealing with the John Mack Institute. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, I spent five years getting to know Socorro, New Mexico. I I got to know Manu's family. I got to know his daughter, Diane, his wife, Mary, his son, Michael. I got to know his coworkers, the local police officer. I mean, I was in, in and out of that town for five years. In fact, I went, I went even bought a, a, their truck, the family truck, which I have now and kept back in California. Um, it just took a lot of time. I mean, I spent a week with uh, Ray Stanford. He wrote the book, uh, 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 Flying uh, Saucer and Pentagon Pantry. Uh, anyway, he wrote the definitive book on the topic of support in Mexico. I mean, there's just a story, there's a backstory with every case. And it was just a monumental task uh, to get this film done. And, and, and look, it's my fourth attempt to create a body of evidence that could be presented to mainstream um, because I feel like this is a topic that there's enough credible information that every man, woman, and child should have the right to know about. And, and putting that together in a digestible, palatable way is incredibly challenging. And just making a documentary is incredibly challenging, but then trying to make a documentary on a topic, you know, that's been shunned by the scientific community and the mainstream media for 75 years. I mean, you know, it's yeah. incredibly difficult. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish, I wish, wouldn't wish what I went through upon my worst enemy. I don't want to say that like it wasn't. It's, I didn't have fun as well, but it was incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. It's like it's like marriage, James. You know, things are tough at the best of times. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my God! Yeah. Well, listen, I'm really glad. I'm really happy. It's one of the first times that I finished a film, and I patted myself on the back and said. I like this one. I'm I'm happy. Wow. This wow. this this the manifestation of this is how I envisioned it wanting to be from concept to completion. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. And any plans to get this into the hands of uh, elected officials? Oh, that's already going on big time. Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's so much going on behind the scenes right now. <laughs> You guys, it's unbelievable. I mean, look, Lou Elizondo publicly endorsed this. He was head of, he was director of the program for at the Pentagon. Um, Christopher Mellon, I mean, they're using it as an educational tool. Senator Harry Reid, I mean, everybody's endorsing it publicly and they're spreading the word like crazy. Absolutely. This is, this is not going to be a flash in the pan, like, you know, this is a marathon that we're running right now. This is just, as, as Senator Reid said, the tip of the iceberg. And it's this, you know, with disclosure, it's like you've been, people have been kicking in the door, kicking in the door. And it seems like it's just, I get the sense, hanging by a few splinters. What what are those splinters? What's what's the main obstacle that remains in your mind? I think that from people that I've talked to uh, that are in a position to sort of do a lot more, 
Uh, it's one of the reasons why we put a call to action at the end of the movie. You know, representatives need to hear from their constituents. They need to hear that, hey, the water's okay. We're not going to castigate you for putting your neck out on a topic that's generally not considered worthy of serious investigation. Uh, I think that's changing. And I think that the more we, the people, reach out to our representatives and say, hey, we want to know more, we know there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, we want to push for transparency. I mean, ultimately, I'd like to see congressional hearings. I think that would that would certainly do it. Um, Christopher Mellon said that there's supposed to be uh, an evaluation, a report that's supposed to be made public, public um, about uh, an assessment, really, as to what's going on. That's due at any moment. And I know that Mr. Mellon is, is working hard behind the scenes and, and getting that out. So I'm very, very optimistic, more so than I've ever been times a hundred, times a thousand, quite honestly. So um, I think we're, I really believe that we are at a tipping point. I don't see it going backwards. I see us going forwards. James, congratulations on the phenomenon, thephenomenonfilm.com. And um, we appreciate you, you dropping by and spending some time with us. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right, Victor and I will uh, will be back in mere moments here on The Conspiracy Show to talk more about UFO disclosure and the phenomenon. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with me. James Fox, ufologist, filmmaker, director of The Phenomenon, has left us, but Victor and I will carry on this hour discussing the film and UFO disclosure in general. Before I get back to Victor, just a reminder that if you enjoy The Conspiracy Show, check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com to listen and subscribe. Uh, the most recent, The most recent 30 episodes are free. You can become a premium subscriber for less than $2 a month U.S., and that'll give you access to the back catalog, which is over 430 episodes, plus you get two commercial-free episodes per month. And to become a premium subscriber, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes, and you can sign up. All right, Victor Vigiani is uh, back. Again, the, the executive director of Zeland Communications and Zeland News Network, and uh, a retired school principal from Toronto has been studying anomalous aerial phenomena for over 30 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals, reporting anomalous experiences, presentations and journalism in the field of ETI disclosure issues. Uh, Victor, welcome back and thanks for hanging out for the full two hours. Oh, it's a pleasure, Richard, to be with you and uh, take off on the last hour. My goodness, where do we go from there? Um, I, I'd like to, you know, go back over some of the things that we touched on and maybe in a little bit more detail. One of the uh, the things I, I mentioned that 
Jacques Vallée uncovering that letter in Dr. J. Allen Hynek's um, vast library of documents. And I guess Hynek didn't even realize he had it. But this was that letter that uh, supposedly changed Vallée's life. And uh, it revealed this. Uh, and, and James Fox, he touched on it, but uh, he didn't go into too much detail. And I won't either, except to say that this letter revealed uh, what can only be described as an ultra-secret government investigation into UFOs. It was unknown to to all but a few. And um, it indicated, uh, I think it was Patel Memorial Institute, right. where they were studying these exotic metals. It was someone, I think his name was H.L. Cross, was studying these exotic metals and uh, basically you know, con- concluding they were not likely of this world. I mean, that's, I can see how that letter would change his life. Well, when you look at the, the, um, uh, the kind of research that was done on those metals, um, the, the doctor, what was his name? No, the last name was Nolan, I believe it was. What, what they found is that these Exotic materials, for lack of a better word, exhibited ratios of isotopes. And I'm not a physicist at all, but I mean, just, I'm looking at you know what the what the findings were. The isotope ratios did not make any sense when they an, uh, analyzed everything to the very very basic particulate matter of what these uh, of what these uh, particles were. It's something that they'd never found before, and it also leads into the argument or at least the perspective of of um, of of of, Zazar, of he, he found this element 115 now the question is what's the relationship between what bob lazar found with element 115 and the isotopic um, anomalies that uh, dr nolan found if these things are if this material is in fact unknowable on our planet or even in any part of our own solar system that to me indicates that whoever um the has sort of made these craft of unknown origin crash or or and then us find what these things are made of it's an indication that we are finding out who and what these people or these beings are all about i think that's what it points to I mean, you can examine the particles and, and you know, uh, you know, go for days and days and days to examine what these things are. But what the fact of the matter is, it points to the fact that we have craft of unknown origin coming from someplace else, either, in, you know, in our own solar system or our own cosmos someplace or, lack of a better word, interdimensional. I don't want to get into that just yet. But if these things, if this material is not of any known substance that we have, and we're extending the periodic table into materials that we don't know about, what does that say about what this issue is all about? You, you can't deny the fact that whatever these craft are, call them UFOs, UAP, they are definitely not from here. And extending that argument, mainstream scientists have to admit that we have to find out a bit more about that and shed this whole notion of, well, this can't possibly happen. Well, it is happening, and it's here. It's right in our lap. And, you know, Jacques Vallée, has, as someone uh, who spurred my interest in all of this, Richard, uh, I know back in 1975, I was at a Coles bookstore up in, in Barrie, Ontario, just browsing, and I picked up his book, and I don't know why I did it, 
my wife was shopping, doing something else, and I, I was browsing. I went into the, the store and I saw this book, Revelations by Jacques Vallée. I had no idea what that book was or meant. Or, and I picked it up and I read the forward to it. And I said, my goodness, this sounds really interesting. And this is 1975. And then from there, I brought that book back home, back to the cottage. And I read it during the summer. I read the book, Richard, four times. I couldn't digest it all in just one or two readings. So Jacques Vallée has done something here. He's brought forward a whole new realm of understanding about what this exotic material might be. And who knows where this is going to lead us in terms of what mainstream science could do to propel some sort of acknowledgement that these craft are not from here. And where do we go with that information? What do we do with it? And how will the general public understand it? Right. You you mentioned Dr. Nolan, and this is... Uh, this is the analyzing of these exotic materials that's going on right now in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Dr. Vallee and Dr. Nolan. And these are materials that, that Vallee has collected over the years from alleged UFO crash sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Nolan referred to them as ultra material. Right. And you're right. The, the again, I'm not a a physicist <laughs> certainly, and I don't even play one on the radio. But I think he mentioned something like evidence that there are, there is evidence of 253 different isotopes contained in these materials, uh, right. whereas you know we use about 83. Uh, That's right. Know, yeah. 83 isotopes. So 253. So again, the conclusion was manufactured, not natural. Not now. Not necessarily off planet, but still manufactured, uh, not natural. Right. Right. Um, other other points in the in the film uh, in the phenomenon that uh, that really kind of shook you up. Well, this sitting through the whole thing the first time that I um, I've seen out of the blue. And I saw um, uh, James's film. I know what I saw, and they they were excellent. They were uh, in so many different ways, just riveting. But with this particular um, film, and the way it struck me was, um, and and listening to how uh, James put things together over time, uh, we we had we spent some time on a, a group interview on 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 Facebook with Grant Cameron. Uh, about three weeks ago, there was about f- six or seven people involved in this, and Grant put this together. And it was the first time, I think, that James had had a chance to really kind of expound very, very informally on, on what he had done. And it was very and, um, you know, uh, instructive for me to see not only the depth to which uh, James had had gone to put this all together, but the physical toll and the, me- the, the mental and the emotional toll it took on him. And what it what it showed me was that he has dipped his finger into an inkwell that uh, and the stain of which he it's not going to ever be removed. He will be placed in history. And I, I can guarantee you that this particular film will set a benchmark for anyone who has any kind of interest in finding out what the, this issue is all about. And not just the people who have a, a deep interest in it, there is so much there for them too, but it's also a benchmark for people who um, 
Can you imagine putting this in the hands of someone who knows nothing about the issue or getting a good journalist who has an inquisitive nature and say, you know, would you have a look at this and see where you want to go with it? This this phenomenon, this film, the phenomenon could be uh, a, a real uh, headwit for a lot of people to find out that there's much more to this. And somebody out there, some people, some uh, level of species out there is doing things that we just don't understand. And the sooner we come to grips with the fact that this is actually happening and we move it into the into the mainstream science and mainstream journalism, the better people will understand that they've got to move away from the kitchen table and and and, and you know stop you know absorbing some of the information that's being uh, foisted on them about the regular reality that we're in and they have to remo- remove themselves from that reality and i've done that uh, you know over the course of my investigations i continuously remove myself from the reality that i'm in And we have to do that to a certain point. This sounds very esoteric and everything, but if you you keep on thinking along the same lines all of the time, you put yourself in a straitjacket. Eventually, you have to, if you have any kind of inquisitive nature to yourself at all, you have to move beyond what our um, emotional and physical and and, and neurological uh, confinement does to our own reality. And move beyond that. And once you move beyond that and begin to accept the fact that there are go- there are things going on beyond our reality, that's the key, is understanding that our, reality, that our reality is not the total sum of all realities. Now, has the phenomenon moved us towards that? I think it has. It's done it in a way that's informational. It's done it in a way that's factual. It's done it in a way that's extremely emotional. I would dare anyone to watch the last 20 minutes of that film uh, with respect to the aerial school children. And now as adults, what they went through, these children were standing one meter, one meter from beings from another world. Like, how do you internalize that kind of information and what does it mean to us? And if it just is become something as, well, it's the same thing as crossing the street. Uh, against a red light or whatever. I mean, you really don't get the fact that this is important. But if you internalize the fact that some of these children, two or three of them, actually said they stood one meter from a being from another world, I mean, Richard, what does that mean? That's that's a question that... And, yeah. and for those maybe joining us later, not familiar with the uh, the aerial school in Zimbabwe, this was in 1994, uh, and you had, I believe, there were something like 66 children who witnessed this, and and some teachers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, these craft. They landed in the uh, in the schoolyard or adjacent to the schoolyard. Entities got out, as you say. Some children were a meter, which is like three and a half feet, less than three and a half feet away, staring mm-hmm. into their eyes. Uh, and then James Fox did something quite remarkable. He brought those students, uh, a number of them, again uh, together again, twenty years later, to recount what they had saw or had seen. And uh, again, they they were adamant. Their story didn't change at all. That you could tell that exactly. they were they're very emotional. I think right. after looking at this uh, this movie, this documentary, the phenomenon, it's for someone who's not familiar with the issue. It's really the only documentary you need to see. I think James did such a great job in he did two things. He brought everything together 
in an hour and a half that gives you this crash course in the UFO issue since 1947 to the present day. Uh, but at the same time, for those of us that are a little more immersed in the issue, there was a lot of new stuff there too. I wasn't, for example, I wasn't uh, aware, for example, of uh, the 1959 Papua New Guinea case, mm-hmm. where a missionary, where a missionary right. saw this craft, along with 38 other witnesses. Uh, and there's yeah. enough of that in the in in the film for you know for diehards, um, and even you know better known cases like the Socorro, New Mexico case. As I mentioned to James, he did a great job on putting some meat on them bones because that's a case that kind of gets glossed over uh, mm-hmm. typically when it's covered. But he, again, he interviewed Socorro's wife – or sorry, um, um, Larry's wife, the, uh, the, uh, the the deputy that saw it, uh, the, the craft that landed. He interviewed his partner. Uh, we, we actually go to the landing site. We see raw footage. I hadn't seen that footage before where we see the, the imprint, the craft made when it touched down. Had you seen that, that, uh, that footage before? No, I haven't. That, that's totally new to me. Right. And, have you, uh, have you ever, have you, have you ever heard from Lonnie, uh, Zamoro's wife before? No, not, not, not in the depth that, that James did. He, that, that you're exactly right, uh, Richard. He, he's, 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 um, he's got to some things that even some of the more um, astute um, uh, UFO researchers and historians, they're, they're shaking their heads and asking the question, where did he get some of this stuff? I mean, this, this is ap- he's, got, he's got footage of James McDonald, a, a scientist who was, was ridiculed severely. He's got tape. And, you know, film of him actually on film saying certain things that I've never heard before. So you know, anyone who has any doubt about the severity and the intrusiveness and the authenticity of this film, if, the, if you've got any doubts about it, watch it. And you will be totally convinced that what James Fox did was absolutely incredibly incisive and, and research beyond the pale. Absolutely. The the um, the Papua New Guinea case. For people who who are not familiar with it, there are people are are. There's a small school. I'm not sure exactly how many children were involved, but there was a missionary there with several children. There could have been up to 25 or 30. They were standing on the shore, and they saw this craft hover out over the water. It was a large craft, had lights on around the side, and then it came in so close that the children actually saw beings, four beings, standing around the outside, or at least within uh, windows within this craft. They actually saw the beings in the craft hovering yes. over the water. Yes. And it's or on just top, like, perhaps even on top of the craft. Exactly, exactly. Now, you've got a missionary, you know, a, a man of the cloth, so, so to speak. Why would this fellow bring forward something like that if, he, if it wasn't something true? And absolutely T-R-U-E, true, with children. There's no reason for him to fabricate this kind of information. So James has done a great job in bringing these things to the forefront, and not only bringing them to the forefront, but putting them in a really incredible historical context that leads us up to the current state of affairs with, you know, the Tic Tac videos and the, you know, the ATIP program and, you know, Harry Reid and all of that. What he does, he's connected the dots so much more uh, authentically than anything that I've ever seen before in, in, in my experience. It's just he hit he hit the ball right out of the park. 
I, I would agree. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about the film, but also we'll talk about uh, d- disclosure in general. And uh, we'll o- also open up the phone lines and we'll make those available to listeners right now. 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. one 866 740 The uh, w- We were talking about some of these landings, uh, UFO landings in uh, near schools, and the other one was uh, Westall, uh, right. which is um, in Australia. This happened in 1966. And uh, again, a number of witnesses. These were, uh, I, I believe, older children, if I'm not mistaken, than the the children at the uh, aerial school in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting uh, segment, though, in the film where a science a teacher who had never come out publicly and spoken before finally spoke out, uh, wished to remain anonymous, but uh, had, had an interesting story to tell. Do you remember that? that yeah, the, the, yeah the, the, the interesting part of that, it was 1966, I believe. And I believe the, the number of students, we're talking several hundred students at this point. And this is the way the uh, James characterized it. And the, the actual witnessing of what went on was so um, enthralling that these children were affected to an emotional state. And I've done some, uh, you know, uh, talking to people in Australia because I spent some time there. The children that, were, um, that, were, that, that saw this, that witnessed this, uh, they're, they're adults now, of course, as you know, back in 1966, they were so emotionally um, distraught uh, and, and, and completely perplexed by what went on. There is there's a lot of um, uh, I, I'm not going to call it mental illness. There wasn't. But some of these people went into almost like a, in a, an emotional cascade fa- uh, failure because they couldn't understand what they were seeing and why they were seeing it, the, the craft that they saw. And then, as you said, the, the teacher that came forward, he was also extremely ridiculed at the time for even uh, bringing it forward. And then he shut up. He just stopped talking about it. He didn't want to deal with it. He couldn't deal with it. Uh, but at some point, um, I'm not sure exactly how far it was along into his career or after he retired, he decided to come forward. And he, he dealt with it. He brought some closure to it. So th- this kind of stuff that happens on a personal level, and to me, as a former educator and uh, you know, a principal of schools, I can well appreciate the kind of impact that this would have had on a school community. I mean, you know, I, I've been a principal of a school, you know, with 500 children in it. And, uh, you know, you, you have these children experience something like that. I don't know, Richard, how I could even possibly deal with that kind of incident. I mean, you deal with the regular things that happen in a school on a day to day basis. And that's very difficult. You know, right. Children come and go. There are problems and all of the emotional and sociological things that happen with children and the, the you know, learning disabled children. You know, and then you you have a a craft of unknown origin come and land on the field exactly. close to your school. My Victory. goodness, how do you you just don't call you just don't call recess, okay? <laughs> Victor, we got to take a, a time out. We'll come back and uh, delve further into UFO okay. disclosure and James Fox's latest film, The Phenomenon, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Happy birthday to you! Hey. Bye. 
Where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network and Zealand Communications. We're talking about James Fox's latest film, The Phenomenon. Uh, James uh, joined us earlier for the first hour. Uh, and um, people can screen that. Uh, go to thephenomenonfilm.com thephenomenonfilm.com or go to strangeplanet.ca and under tonight's show information you'll see the film listed there just click on that that'll link right to the website thephenomenonfilm.com we were talking about the Westall uh, 1966 UFO uh, incident in Australia and we were talking about that science uh, teacher who finally for the first time, spoke out publicly after holding this in for 54 years. And you were wondering, as a former educator, a retired school principal, how, you know, how how difficult that must have been. But he, he was, I believe, visited by a couple of uh, Air Force officials who, who warned him that if he ever spoke out about it, he would be reported as a, a, a drunk. They were going to concoct some story. Uh, and they would get him fired right quick. Remember that? Yes, he was. He was very clearly told that that uh, he should not talk about this again. And they actually accused him of being drunk, according to according to what um, what the James's film said. And I, I what I guess it points to, uh, Richard, is the fact that whatever the security networks that are in place um, uh, are, and what they have. Um, control over are so insidious that they could reach down into a community like that, go to a school, sit down with a teacher and say, you did not see what you saw. And if you do come forward to say what you saw, we will discredit you to a point where you will have nothing left in your career. Now, how insidious is that? And this is not the first time this has ever happened. This happens with, uh, you know, in my conversations with Robert Salas, uh, the, the nuclear installation um, the launch commander. And, you know, Bob and I have a very close relationship. And, and the depth of, of, of concern that he's expressed continuously about what happened to not only him, but to his security guards and to everybody else who's been a part of the witnessing of UFOs over nuclear installations and how government officials have forced these these um, Air Force officials to just stay quiet. Uh, it, it is absolutely mind-boggling the extent to which the national security um, uh, element within the United States government is so uh, in control of this, or they think they are so in control of it, that uh, people are afraid to, for, you know, incarceration, loss of their pensions, and just, you know, personal uh, discreditation. So the level of, of uh, negativity surrounding this makes sure that this stuff does not get out. And they've done a pretty good job of it, really. 
Well, you're right. It's one thing for someone in the military to be told not to talk about it. But I, I think it was in the Westall uh, school case in 66 in Australia. The children mm-hmm. were called into an assembly. I don't know if there were any uh, uh, sort of military type officials there, but they were certainly told by their, te- their teachers, you didn't see anything and you're not to talk about it. Right. <laughs> You're not, you didn't see anything, and you're yeah. not to talk about it, which is kind of our. I can just imagine I can just imagine me as a. I've held many assemblies in my in my days of school, you know, gathering together 500 children in the gym and saying, "Okay, folks, um, you didn't see what you saw, and here's how we're going to handle that." Uh, I, I just you know, I cannot imagine myself being put in that kind of position, uh, both knowing what I know now and even knowing what I know then. Uh, I would have jumped up and down and had the media there at the school to interview every single child. I don't know, but that's just me. <laughs> All right, let's uh, go to the phones. And Skip is joining us from Connecticut. Skip, welcome. Yeah, hi. Very interesting discussions. I have two questions. One would be the premise that all this unfolded to where the government has a monopoly on this information, you know, like that idea of, you know, tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's got, uh, why would, that would almost indicate that these beings are communicating with our government and they're not telling us. And the second thing, the fact that there's been some crash sites tells me it's probably not coming from interstellar space. If the crash were that, uh, superstar, they, they wouldn't crash, I, I believe. Yeah, you, you've you've Skip, you've hit two nails right on the head. Let's deal with the first one. Um, your your first point was regarding a government uh, knowledge of this. Uh, let's move that forward a little bit. And um, James does um, approach this issue in the film. Most of us feel that, um, or a lot of researchers and people in the general public feel that this is a government military issue within the United States government. But I think within the film, uh, the and, and other uh, researchers have said this, that gradually over time, for some reason and somehow, the United States government has done a soft handoff to corporate entities, to private sector corporations, to give them information or allow them to be exposed to certain levels of, of, of declassified and classified information so that this information is now in the private sector. And in a very gingerly soft way, government is kind of backing off a little bit on this, leaving it in the private sector and allowing for the private sector to move this stuff forward. Now, I talk about Robert Bigelow. We're talking about the Rand Corporation, uh, General Electric, uh, and, um, Johnson Control Systems. These are all corporations who have been given information about this stuff. And that allows the American government to take a step back. And say, well, we, we really don't know what's going on. It's all in the private sector, which leads to the to the point of, you know, plausible deniability in terms of uh, acknowledgement or disclosure, which we'll get into later on. Now, your second point regarding crashes, it, it, to me, it indicates that some of these uh, civilizations or some of these craft or some of these entities are in some way vulnerable or, or they have weaknesses just like we do. Uh, if, if these craft are as you know sophisticated as some people say that they shouldn't be doing, they shouldn't be crashing. 
But something about the, either their composition or the electromagnetic uh, systems around the pl- our planet or, or or some dysfunction within their own craft are causing them to, to crash. And you have to ask the question, why? And where are the crashes? What happens to them? And what happens to the bodies? So these are all unanswered questions that I think that um, either the government has to eventually come forward on or the corporations have to deal with it because they have somehow commandeered some of the, the, the materials, as Rich and I were talking about earlier. There's a whole lot of unanswered questions around all of this, and that's why I think the uh, the journalistic community should really kind of step up their, their act and get into finding out why this is happening. Skip, thank you for the call. Uh, you're right. And, you know, newspapers everywhere are failing. Uh, they are trying to come up with some sort of a business model, you know, whether it's paying for content online, which is going nowhere after right. people have had free content for decades. Now they expect people to pay. That's not going to happen. This might be their answer is mm. to, to to start paying attention to this issue and writing about it and employing some of the same journalistic practices they apply to City Hall and the provincial budget to this very issue. I'm serious. I mean, their readership would explode. Richard, please do not get me going on this one, okay? This is is something that's a stone in my shoe, not a pebble in my shoe. It's a stone in my shoe. We can see that the newsprint industry is collapsing. Everybody knows that uh, the Toronto Star, the National Post, uh, they're all posting things, you know, boost up and, you know, this is solid journalism. Give us the, give us the credit we're due. What they're doing is hiding behind a facade of of um, of how, how can I put it? I'm not going to call it fake news because it's not fake news. It's 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 fabricated news. There's a difference between fake news and fabricated news. Uh, and we talk about all the things that are going on uh, that are so ephemeral in their in their effects on us on a daily basis that if they were to choose some really key writers and have them spend three months investigating this stuff, these newspapers could publish online and both in, in, in newsprint. They could publish articles that would change the public mind within three to four weeks on this issue. And I'm not exaggerating. There's so much and out there's, there. Yeah, and there's enough going on that that they could they could they could dine out on it. it they could fill an entire oh. front section of the newspaper, or or have a separate section of the newspaper. Uh, they could have uh, assign someone that that is their beat. You have a Queens exactly. Park bureau. You could have a UFO bureau. Uh, well, if they were, if they're smart. You know, just simply from a profit motive, they should be looking at that. Uh, let's go to the um, uh, the YouTube chat. Solar Warden asks, are you familiar with the sighting of Chris Gibson in the North Sea of the Black Triangular craft in 1989 while working on an oil rig? He was a uh, Royal Naval Corps observer. Uh, thoughts on the uh, on the Chris Gibson sighting? I, I'm familiar with it a little bit. Uh, this is a, a Scottish exploration engineer mm-hmm. yeah. and um, saw this unknown craft. Anyway, are you familiar with that? I'm not, not at all. I have to admit that I'm not familiar with that one at all. I am familiar with the black triangle, the uh, TR-3Bs. I'm familiar with the uh, with the, that kind of craft and that whole kind of concept, but I'm not 
particularly familiar with that particular incident in was it 19, uh, 1989? August of eighty nine. Yeah. yeah, there yeah. is some some speculation uh, that it that, that this triangle might have been what they call the um, uh, what is it? It's an advanced craft. It's a, an Aurora hypersonic spy plane. Uh, right. TR three B. TR3B. It may be one of those. We've got to take a timeout. We'll be back in a moment. The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. Toll free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740, 1-866-740-4740. And I neglected to mention, for those of you who have assembled in the YouTube chat, please, uh, your questions, if you have. And my live stream producer, Ryan, will forward those on to me. Let's go to the phones. And uh, I believe it's Kathy in uh, St. Catharines. Kathy, welcome. Hi, gentlemen. I've got two questions. The first is when these UFOs appeared at the schools in Africa and Australia, did they try to kidnap any of the children? And second, do you think God was a space alien? All right, Victor. To my knowledge, there were no uh, attempted abductions of the children, although several children in the the, uh, aerial school in Zimbabwe in 94 it seems to be they, they hinted at some telepathic communication and they felt like they were being sort of invited to go with them, but there was nothing, no one taken by force. Well, um, thanks for your questions, Kathy. Excellent question. Um, the, the Let's take the aerial school to begin with. Uh, uh, my experience with that is, has been very direct because I've had, I spent three days with Dr. John Mack um, at his office in the Harvard School uh, of psychiatry uh, in 1996. I went down there and I had reasons to go down, which is, is another case altogether. But in his um, in his assessment and his interaction with the children, he went down there and interviewed, I'm not sure how many, I, th- I think he interviewed seven or eight of the children. Uh, none of them ever alluded to the fact that they were uh, taken or taken aboard ships, uh, experienced missing time or anything like that. This This happened all in real time. Uh, none of the children actually you know, expressed any kind of uh, indication that they were taken. Uh, however, as Richard just said, uh, two or three of them, when interviewed by Dr. John Mack, uh, were very, very specific. And we're talking young children here, okay, that uh, when John Mack asked them the question, how did you interact with these, with these beings? Did you talk to them? And they said no. And then John Mack asked, well, how did they talk to you? And without question, the children, uh, three of the children respond, in, in my mind. And John didn't try to lead them. We said, well, what do you mean in your mind? I just received words in my mind about us not taking care of the planet and that we have to take care of the planet better. And that we're technology, our technology is taking over and that we have to be careful with the technology. And he kept on asking them, how did you get this information? And it was through some sort of telepathic communication. Um, but John never found out any information indicating that these children were taken. Um, so that's, that's my response to your first, uh, the first part of your question. The second part, <laughs> do I think that God is a, is an extraterrestrial? 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Piece, <laughs> how long with a piece of string, Kathy? You go right ahead, Richard. Take that one. Well, yeah, I, yeah I, I mean, he is of extraterrestrial origin. He is not of this of this 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 world. But uh, you know, he's not an uh, you know an alien, if that's what you mean. I don't subscribe uh, to the ancient alien uh, theory myself. Um, but I, you know, there, there's some discussion as to whether in the Catholic church, it seems to have, uh, held open the possibility that, uh, you know, if there are extraterrestrials, they are part of God's creation, uh, so that there's nothing, uh, anti-biblical or, uh, you know, that, that, that necessarily mm-hmm. argues against the biblical narrative in order to believe in extraterrestrials. Uh, but I don't believe that God is a, an ET or Jesus is an ET, except that they are not of this world, but they're not, you know, from another planet, if that's what you're asking. Mm-hmm. But thank you for the yeah. call. Yeah. Um, not Gordo asks uh, if I've ever been to any UFO crash sites during my travels. And, you know, I have not. And I have to, you know, admit, I'm not, I'm not a boots on the ground investigator researcher. I'm, uh, I'm first and foremost a broadcaster. I talk to the people that visit uh, crash sites. Uh, how about you, Victor? Well, I, I have been to the, uh, the Corona crash site. Uh, in uh, in New Mexico, and most people um, who uh, you know have any kind of cursory knowledge about the the the, the Roswell incident ascribe the the whole incident as the rush as the crash at Roswell. It didn't happen at Roswell. It happened in a small farming co- uh, community in Corona, New Mexico, and it's a very small town. It's there's uh, you know a couple of stores, there's a couple of bars, uh, you know that that kind of thing. There's it's it's a very very small place. But if if you move forward out of there, two or three miles, you uh, move into where the um, where the ranch was, the Brazil Ranch, and uh, you can drive off road into the area where it's purported that this particular craft uh, did crash. And I have I have been there. I've driven up the the dirt road, the, the arroyos that are there, the small hills, uh, in, in you know close to Corona. Uh, there's really not a whole lot to see. I didn't go on any kind of uh, archaeological digs at all, but I did go to the place where the crash purportedly did happen. I also um, had a, a communication with uh, Loretta Proctor, who was uh, a friend of Max Brazel, who was actually in the the debris field. Uh, in, in on his farm, on the farm that he was in charge of as a manager. And uh, what Loretta Proctor told me is that uh, Mac Brazel, after the incident, got, was on his horse looking around and got a piece of this material, brought it back uh, to his house, uh, looked at it uh, and did whatever he had to do with it, and then brought it over to her place, uh, cl- what, quite close to him. And she actually saw the material, and it was, uh, uh, you know, very, very... Uh, aluminum like very um uh the tensile strength to it you couldn't put any holes in it and then after that max brought the material to the uh, the cat mountain uh in at in right in corona and they placed it on the bar they placed this stuff on the bar and tried to drive nails through this stuff with a hammer and there's no they just could not do anything to the material so um you know i have that as first hand conversation with these with with Loretta Proctor and i have to trust that she's being authentic about it uh, there, there's no reason to believe that uh, Loretta would make this kind of stuff up so uh, it it does indicate um that 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 there is something 
that something really did crash there and that uh, it has to be taken seriously. There's just no doubt about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and we will take another time out, come back and finish up Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, talking the phenomenon documentary and UFO disclosure. Back with more in a moment. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. A quick programming note. Next week, Rocco Galati, uh, if you've been following his uh, exploits, Rocco is an attorney and he has been uh, fighting in court against uh, lockdowns and uh, the... uh, apparent or not apparent it's obvious erosion of civil liberties uh, during the uh, the uh, the case demic as some call it uh, Rocco Galati will be uh, here next week live for the full two hours and I hope you can be on board uh, for this one it's uh, I, I I sincerely believe one of the more important one of the most important uh, programs I've done to date Rocco Galati for the full two hours. Uh, Victor Vigiani is uh, with us and um, we will get back to the uh, the couple of YouTube uh, live chat questions here in a moment. Um, I wanted to go back to James Fox film The Phenomenon and ask you uh, that um, part of the film dealing with after the the, um, the collapse of communism and uh, my coast-to-coast colleague George Knapp was invited to go to Moscow and and investigate, and he spoke with military personnel on that side uh, and was sort of echoing what was happening at nuclear air force bases, or sorry, nuclear bases over here, uh, particularly in the United States. But there's something that's kind of was kind of gnawing at me, and that is while in the U.S. at Malmstrom and Minot and uh, Ellsworth uh, air, air force bases. The UFOs were turning the missiles off. They were taking them offline. But there was at least one incident in Ukraine at a nuclear base where they had they had triggered the launch signal. In other words, they turned it on. That doesn't sound to me like they were trying to avert nuclear war. That almost sounds like they were up to mischief. They were trying to cause something. I mean, the... The uh, the personnel in Ukraine had to scramble. You can imagine the panic. They see the countdown has begun on these missiles. What did you think about that? Well, yeah, I I, I um in watching that whole thing, uh, I forget the uh, the Russian individual. It began with an M, but in any case, it was a, <clears throat> a Russian individual. Um, it, it, whether they're turned on or off, uh, that 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 is definitely an issue. Uh, you know, the the launch commanders in the United States uh, indicated, um, as as well as uh, visits to Renaissance Force in, in the UK, that there was some sort of um, interference with nuclear weapons. Um, the the turning on of these things uh, in the Ukraine um, indicate to me, in a similar way. Uh, whatever the these craft are, these intelligent craft uh, under intelligent control are, I, I, don't, I don't know whether turning them on or turning them off is the issue as far as I'm, I'm trying to assess this, um, you know, in a, in a holistic way. What I think is really being pointed to here, Richard, is that um, they have control of the situation and they are telling 
us or the, the people who are in charge of these of these nuclear weapons that they have control and they can turn them on or turn them off. I, I don't have any doubt that there's no reason for them to turn these things on to you know to start a nuclear event. I, I don't think that was their intention because even if they did turn them on, they probably understood that whoever's in charge of these missile silos could turn them off. And this this happened, uh, you know, within the the the, the Malmstrom situation too. They went offline and they brought them back online on their own. I, I think what happened there, just I'm just speculating. It's my own assumption that they that whoever these beings are that are coming into the airspace are saying to us, we have control of, over what you're doing. So don't mess around with these things because if you do decide to engage in some sort of nuclear event, we can control whatever you do. So just let's just not fool around with this stuff. Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps. Yeah, except, yeah I, I'm uh, not sure what else, what other conclusion you can come to. Uh, yeah. you may have another. Well, I, uh, well, I, I come back to that word mischief because you know, right. as James mm-hmm. Fox points out in in the film, and he shows there's a chart there. He shows the number number of nuclear uh, tests that have been conducted mm-hmm. by all, you know, not only the United States but also. Uh, the Soviet Union and I believe uh, China and and uh, many other countries have have tested their, you know, where were the where were the UFOs then? Where were they in in August of 1945 right. when two mm-hmm. of them were used? That, that's always puzzled me. I don't have the answer. Yeah, right. But but well, I just find that kind of a puzzle. Yeah, I, one of the things that comes to mind uh, or that has come to mind uh, to me with respect to all of the nuclear types of incidents is not just what is happening with each individual case, but it also indicates to me that there may be a a number of species that are involved in these kinds of activities. So if you have, let's call them species one, does one thing with these nuclear um, assets, and species two does another thing with these nuclear assets, uh, I think sometimes we um, uh, are are overridden by the assumption that there is one species doing these things. My sense is that, uh, and the information we have from a number of of contactees, that there are a realm, a whole broad spectrum of species that interact with us. Now, whether their craft are all the same, whether they're different, whatever that might be. But there's not just one species interacting. So if that's the case, if there are a number of species interacting with us, they each may have a different agenda in whatever kind of messaging that they are putting in place to talk to us about the nuclear um, about the nuclear situation that we're in. So any one of them could do any number of things to do whatever they want with the with these nuclear assets to get send us a message. It's much like you know what, Richard. It's much like the uh, uh, the crop the crop circle um, uh, situation. Yeah, I've seen so many beautiful uh, um, uh, kind of uh, indications that these crop circles are a form of language for us or to us about who these beings might be. And it, the, 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 the category of languages that are involved in the way these, these crop formations are formed indicates to me that there are a number of species involved in sending us messages about who they are, why they're here, and, and, and what they want to try to say to us um, uh, as, as earthlings, as beings on this planet. So there's a number of messages that are coming down the pipe. 
So I don't think we can kind of just say that one thing is happening about the nuclear uh, incident that says, yeah, it's just one species doing this. I think there's a, there's a whole number of variables involved. Right, in right. All and they, and, and uh, which begs the question, you know, what is their intent? And there there seems to be exactly. there exactly. seems to be intentions that are at cross purposes. Uh, go back to the YouTube live chat. Jay Lee asks, have any of the African school children created enduring interests or careers that followed the incident. This would be the aerial school in Zimbabwe mm-hmm. in 94. Uh, do you know of any children that went yeah. on to pursue sort of a, an interest in UFOs? Well, n- not specifically with UFOs as, as researchers, but I know that um, um, I'm thinking back now to the actual film. I'm trying to think back in my mind. Uh, they were sitting around a table, and I think there were four individuals one of whom was wearing a Toronto Blue Jays sweater. That's I wonder, right. uh, yes. is that a local exactly. connection or? Yes, there is. And that's baseball? another, that's another story altogether, which we can get into at some point. Uh, but I know that um, the four individuals that I saw around the table, one of them was a teacher uh, still involved in it. One of them was a social worker and another one was um, some sort of medical. Um, it wasn't a doctor or anything like that, but a, a medical practitioner of some kind. Um, but they've all been involved in some sort of social aspect uh, of this that it involves them with people who might may have had experiences or may have had some sort of involvement uh, in sort of the sociological, you know, interaction with uh, with, with people. So uh, it, 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 none of them were sort of bank accountants or anything like that, as far as I know. But they, the three of them, I know for a fact, were involved in some sort of social um, s- social careers that uh, brought them involved with people who who may be open to whole to the whole aspect of of uh, the alien encounter. All right, Jay Lee, thank you for that question, and Victor, thank you for these two hours. How do people uh, get out, get on to uh, Zealand News Network? Well, all you have to do is uh, just put in the the search engine Zeland Communications, uh, and you just you'll come upon the uh, the blog uh, that we have, and we've posted uh, a number of things over the past little while, uh, ZelandCommunications.com, uh, and you just just go there, and there's a wealth of information and news uh, news releases and other kinds of things that uh, editorials. I've just put out a couple of editorials recently, so. Uh, uh, we, we depend on that to uh, begin the education process for people who are open to it. All right, Victor. Thank you, my friend. Until uh, next time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. Back next week, Rocco Galati for the full two hours. And uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in light. What I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home or at least up the stairs. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.